Chapter 16 of The Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Kluckner. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John Stevens Cabot Abbott. Chapter 16 The Storms of Hereditary Succession from 1582 to 1608. Anguish and death of Ivan the Fourth, his character, Fyodor and Dmitri, usurpation of Boris Gudnow, the Polish election, conquest of Siberia, assassination of Dmitri, death of Fyodor, Boris crowned king, conspiracies, reappearance of Dmitri, Boris poisoned, the pretender crowned, embarrassments of Dmitri, a new pretender, assassination of Dmitri, crowning of Zuski, indignation of Poland historical romance the hasty blow which deprived the son of ivan of life was also fatal to the father he never recovered from the effects after a few months of anguish and remorse ivan the fourth sank sorrowing to the grave penitent prayerful and assured that his sins were forgiven he met death with perfect composure the last days of his life were devoted exclusively to such preparations for his departure that the welfare of his people might be undisturbed he ordered a general act of amnesty to be proclaimed to all the prisoners throughout all the empire, abolished several onerous taxes, restored several confiscated estates to their original owners, and urged his son Fyodor, who was to be his successor, to make every possible endeavor to live at peace with his neighbors, that Russia might thus be saved from the woes of war. Exhausted by a long interview with his son, he took a bath. On coming out he reclined upon a couch, and suddenly, without a struggle or a groan, was dead. Ivan the Fourth has ever been regarded as one of the most illustrious of the Russian monarchs. He was eminently a learned prince for the times in which he lived, entertaining uncommonly just views both of religion and politics. In religion he was tolerant far above his age, allowing no Christians to be persecuted for their belief. We regret that this high praise must be limited by his treatment of the Jews, whom he could not endure. With conscientiousness, unenlightened and bigoted, he declared that those who had betrayed and crucified the Saviour of the world ought not to be tolerated by any Christian prince. He accordingly ordered every Jew either to be baptized into the Christian faith, or to depart from the empire. Ivan was naturally of a very hasty temper, which was nurtured by the cruel and shameful neglect of his early years. Though he struggled against this infirmity, it would occasionally break out in paroxysms which caused bitter repentance. The death of his son, caused by one of these outbreaks, was the great woe of his life. Still, he was distinguished for his love of justice. At stated times, the aggrieved of every rank were admitted to his presence, where they in person presented their petitions. If any minister or governor was found guilty of oppression, he was sure to meet with condign punishment. This impartiality, from which no noble was exempted, at times exasperated greatly the haughty aristocracy. He was also inflexible in his determination to confer office only upon those who were worthy of the trust. No solicitations or views of self-interest could induce him to swerve from this resolve. Intemperance he especially abominated, and frowned upon the degrading vice alike in prince or peasant. He conferred an inestimable favor upon Russia by causing a compilation, for the use of his subjects, of a body of laws, which was called the Book of Justice. This code was presented to the judges, and was regarded as authority in all law proceedings. The historians of those days record that his memory was so remarkable that he could call all the officers of his army by name, 
and could even remember the name of every prisoner he had taken, numbering many thousands. In those days of dim enlightenment, when the masses were little elevated above the animal, the popular mind was more easily impressed by material than intellectual grandeur. It was then deemed necessary, among the unenlightened nations of Europe, to overawe the multitude by the splendor of the throne, by scepters, robes, and diadems glittering with priceless jewels and with gold. The crown regalia of Russia were inestimably rich. The robe of the monarch was of purple, embroidered with the precious stones, and even his shoes sparkled with diamonds of dazzling luster. When he sat upon his throne to receive foreign ambassadors, or the members of his own court, he held in his right hand a globe, the emblem of universal monarchy, enriched with all the jeweled splendor which art could entwine around it. In his left hand he held a scepter, which also dazzled the eye by its superb embellishments. His fingers were laden with the most precious gems the Indies could afford. Whenever he appeared in public, the arms of the empire, finely embroidered upon a spread eagle, and magnificently adorned, were borne as a banner before him, and the masses of the people bowed before their monarch, thus arrayed as though he were a god. Ivan the Fourth left two sons, Fyodor and Dmitri. Fyodor, who succeeded his father, was twenty years of age, weak, characterless, though quite amiable. In his early youth his chief pleasure seemed to consist in ringing the bells of Moscow, which led his father, at one time, to say that he was fitter to be the son of a sexton than of a prince. Dmitri was an infant. He was placed, by his father's will, under the tutelage of an energetic, ambitious noble by the name of Bogdan Bielski. This aspiring nobleman, conscious of the incapacity of Fyodor to govern, laid his plans to obtain the throne for himself. Fyodor was crowned immediately after the death of his father, and proceeded at once to carry out the provisions of his will by liberating the prisoners, abolishing the taxes, and restoring confiscated estates. He also abolished the bodyguard of the Tsar, which had become peculiarly obnoxious to the nation. These measures rendered him, for a time, very popular. This popularity thwarted Bielski in the plan of organizing the people and the nobles in a conspiracy against the young monarch, and the nobles even became so much alarmed by the proceedings of the haughty minister, who was so evidently aiming at the usurpation of the throne, that they besieged him in his castle. The fortress was strong, and the powerful feudal lord, rallying his vassals around him, made a valiant and a protracted defense. At length, finding that he would be compelled to surrender, he attempted to escape in disguise. Being taken a captive, he was offered his choice, death or the renunciation of all political influence and departure into exile. He chose the latter, and retired beyond the Volga to one of the most remote provinces of Kazan. Fyodor had married the daughter of one of the most illustrious of his nobles. His father-in-law, a man of peculiar address and capacity, with ability both to conceive and execute the greatest undertakings, soon attained supremacy over the mind of the feeble monarch. The name of this noble, who became renowned in Russian annals, was Boris Gudenow. He had the rare faculty of winning the favor of all whom he approached. With rapid strides he attained the posts of Prime Minister, Commander-in-Chief, and Co-Regent of the Empire. A Polish ambassador at this time visited Moscow, and, witnessing the extreme feebleness of Fyodor, sent word to his ambitious master, Stephen Bathory, that nothing would be easier than to invade Russia successfully, that Smolensk could easily be taken, and that thence the Polish army might find an almost unobstructed march to Moscow. But death soon removed the Polish monarch from the labyrinths of war and diplomacy. Boris was now virtually the monarch of Russia, reigning, however, in the name of Fyodor. We have before mentioned that Poland was an elective monarchy. 
immediately upon the death of a sovereign the nobles with their bands of retainers often eighty thousand in number met upon a large plain where they spent many days in intrigues and finally in the election of a new chieftain boris goodenow now roused all his energies in the endeavor to unite poland and russia under one monarchy by the election of fyodor as sovereign of the latter kingdom the polish nobles proud and self-confident and apprised of the incapacity of fyodor were many of them in favor of the plan as boris had adroitly intimated to them that they might regard the measure rather as the annexing russia to poland than poland to russia all that boris cared for was the fact accomplished he was willing that the agents of his scheme should be influenced by any motives which might be most efficacious the polish diet met in a stormy session and finally a majority of its members instead of voting for fyodor elected prince sigismond a son of john king of sweden this election greatly alarmed russia as it allied poland and sweden by the most intimate ties and might eventually place the crown of both of those powerful kingdoms upon the same brow these apprehensions were increased by the fact that the crimean tartars soon again began to make hostile demonstrations and it was feared that they were moving only in accordance with suggestions which had been sent to them from poland and sweden and that thus a triple alliance was about to desolate the empire the tartars commenced their march but boris met them with such energy that they were driven back in utter discomfiture the northern portion of asia consisted of a vast desolate thinly peopled country called siberia it was bounded by the caucasian and altai mountains on the south the ural mountains on the west the pacific ocean on the east and the frozen ocean on the north most of the region was within the limits of the frozen zone and the most southern sections were cold and inhospitable enjoying but a gleam of summer sunshine this country embracing over four millions of square miles being thus larger than the whole of europe contained but about two millions of inhabitants it was watered by some of the most majestic rivers on the globe the obi Enesay, and the lena the population consisted mostly of wandering mohammedan tartars in a very low state of civilization at that time there were but two important towns in this region tura and tobolsk some of the barbarians of this region descended to the shores of the volga in a desolating predatory excursion a russian army drove them back pursued them to their homes took both of these towns erected fortresses and gradually brought the whole of siberia under russian sway this great conquest was achieved almost without bloodshed boris goodenow now exercised all the functions of sovereign authority his energy had enriched russia with the accession of siberia he now resolved to lay aside the feeble prince fyodor who nominally occupied the throne and to place the crown upon his own brow it seemed to him an easy thing to appropriate the emblems of power since he already enjoyed all the prerogatives of royalty under the pretense of rewarding with important posts of trust the most efficient of the nobles he removed all those whose influence he had most to dread to distant provinces and foreign embassies he then endeavored by many favors to win the affections of the populace of moscow the young prince dmitri had now attained his ninth year and was residing under the care of his tutors at the city of uglitz about two hundred miles from moscow uglitz with its dependencies had been assigned to him for his appanage gudenow deemed it essential to his secure occupancy of the throne that this young prince should be put out of the way he accordingly employed a russian officer by the promise of immense rewards to assassinate the child and then the deed having been performed to prevent the possibility of his agency in it being divulged he caused another low-born murderer to track the path of the officer and plunge a dagger into his bosom both murders were successfully accomplished the news of the assassination of the young prince soon reached moscow and caused intense excitement 
Goudenau was by many suspected, though he endeavored to stifle the report by clamorous expressions of horror and indignation, and by apparently making the most strenuous efforts to discover the murderers. As an expression of his rage, he sent troops to demolish the fortress of Uglitz, and to drive the inhabitants from the city, because they had, as he asserted, harbored the assassins. Soon after this Fyodor was suddenly taken ill. He lingered upon his bed for a few days in great pain, and then died. When the king was lying upon this dying bed, Boris Gudnow, who, it will be recollected, was the father of the wife of Fyodor, succeeded in obtaining from him a sort of bequest of the throne, and immediately upon the death of the king, he assumed the state of royalty as a duty enjoined upon him by this bequest. The death of Fyodor terminated the reign of the house of Rurik, which had now governed Russia for more than seven hundred years. Not a little artifice was still requisite to quell the indignant passions which were rising in the bosoms of the nobles. But Gudenau was a consummate master of his art, and through the intrigues of years had the program of operations all arranged. According to custom, six weeks were devoted to mourning for Fyodor. Boris then assembled the nobility and principal citizens of Moscow, in the Kremlin, and, to the unutterable surprise of many of them, declared that he could not consent to assume the weighty cares and infinite responsibilities of royalty, that the empire was unfortunately left without a sovereign, and that they must proceed to designate the one to whom the crown should be transferred, that he, worn down with the toils of state, had decided to retire to a monastery, and devote the remainder of his days to poverty, retirement, and to God. He immediately took leave of the astonished and perplexed assembly, and withdrew to a convent about three miles from Moscow. The partisans of Boris were prepared to act their part. They stated that intelligence had arrived that the Tartars, with an immense army, had commenced the invasion of Russia, that Boris alone was familiar with the condition and resources of the empire, and with the details of administration, that he was a veteran soldier, and that his military genius and vigorous arm were requisite to beat back the foe. These considerations were influential, and a deputation was chosen to urge Boris, as he loved his country, to continue in power and accept the scepter, which, as Prime Minister, he had so long successfully wielded. Boris affected the most extreme reluctance. The populace of Moscow, whose favor he had purchased, surrounded the convent in crowds, and with vehemence, characteristic of their impulsive, childish natures, threw themselves upon the ground, tore their hair, beat their breasts, and declared that they would never return to their homes unless Boris would consent to be their sovereign. Pretending at last to be overcome by these entreaties, Boris consented to raise and lead an army to repel the Tartars, and he promised that should Providence prosper him in this enterprise, he would regard it as an indication that it was the will of heaven that he should ascend the throne. He immediately called all his tremendous energies into exercise, and in a few months collected an army, of the nobles and of the militia, amounting to five hundred thousand men. With great pomp he rode through the ranks of this mighty host, receiving their enthusiastic applause. In that day, as neither telegraphs, newspapers, or stage-coaches existed, intelligence was transmitted with difficulty, and very slowly. The story of the Tartar invasion proved a sham. Boris had originated it to accomplish his purposes. He amused and conciliated the soldiers with magnificent parades, intimating that the Tartars, alarmed by his vast preparations, had not dared to advance against him. A year's pay was ordered for each one of the soldiers. The nobles received gratuities, and were entertained by the Tsar in festivals, at which parties of ten thousand, day after day, were feasted during an interval of six weeks. Boris then returned to Moscow. The people met him several miles from the city, and conducted him in triumph to the Kremlin. He was crowned, with great pomp, 
emperor of russia on the first of september fifteen seventy seven boris watched with an eagle eye all those who could by any possibility disturb his reign or endanger the permanence of the new dynasty which he wished to establish some of the princes of the old royal family were forbidden to marry others were banished to siberia the diadem thus usurped proved indeed a crown of thorns that which is founded in crime can generally by crime alone be perpetuated the manners of the usurper were soon entirely altered he had been affable easy of access and very popular but now he became haughty reserved and suspicious wishing to strengthen his dynasty by royal alliances he proposed the marriage of his daughter to gustavus son of eric the fourteenth king of sweden he accordingly invited gustavus to moscow making him pompous promises the young prince was received with magnificent display and loaded with presents but there was soon a falling out between boris and his intended son-in-law and the young prince was dismissed in disgrace he however succeeded in establishing a treaty of peace with the poles which was to continue twenty years he also was successful in contracting an alliance for his daughter Exinia with Duke John of Denmark. The marriage was celebrated in Moscow in 1602 with great splendor. But even before the marriage festivities were closed, the Duke was taken sick and died, to the inexpressible disappointment of Boris. The Turks from Constantinople sent an embassy to Moscow with rich presents, proposing a treaty of friendship and alliance. But Boris declined the presents, and dismissed the ambassadors, saying that he could never be friendly to the Turks, as they were the enemies of Christianity. Like many other men, he could trample upon the precepts of the gospel, and yet be zealous of Christianity as a doctrinal code or an institution. A report was now circulated that the young Dmitri was still alive, that his mother, conscious of the danger of his assassination, had placed the prince in a position of safety, and that another child had been assassinated in his stead. This rumor overwhelmed the guilty soul of Boris with melancholy. His fears were so strongly excited that several nobles, who were supposed to be in the interests of the young prince, were put to the rack to extort a confession. But no positive information respecting Dmitri could be gained. The mother of Dmitri was banished to an obscure fortress six hundred miles from Moscow. The emissaries of Boris were everywhere busy to detect, if possible, the hiding-place of Dmitri. Intelligence was at length brought to the Kremlin that two monks had escaped from a convent and had fled to Poland, and that it was apprehended that one of them was the young prince in disguise. It was also said that Wisnowski, prince of Kiev, was protector of Dmitri, and, in concert with others, was preparing a movement to place him upon the throne of his ancestors. Boris was thrown into paroxysms of terror. Not knowing what else to do, he frantically sent a party of Cossacks to murder Wisnowski, but the prince was on his guard, and the enterprise failed. The question, have we a bourbon among us, has agitated the whole of the United States. The question, have we a Dmitri among us, then agitated Russia far more intensely. It was a question of the utmost practical importance, involving civil war and the removal of the new dynasty for the restoration of the old. Whether the person said to be Dmitri were really such is a question which can now never be settled. The monk Griska Utrapeja, who declared himself to be the young prince, sustained his claim with such an array of evidence as to secure the support of a large portion of the Russians, and also the cooperation of the court of Poland. The claims of Griska were brought up before the Polish Diet, and carefully examined. He was then acknowledged by them as the legitimate heir to the crown of Russia. An army was raised to restore him to his ancestral throne. Sigismund, the king of Poland, with ardor espoused his cause. Boris immediately dispatched an embassy to Warsaw to remind Sigismund of the treaty of alliance into which he had entered, 
and to insist upon his delivering up the pretended Dmitri, dead or alive. A threat was added to the entreaty. "'If you countenance this impostor, said Boris, "'you will draw down upon you a war which you may have cause to repent.' Sigismund replied that though he had no doubt that Griska was truly the Prince Dmitri, and, as such, entitled to the throne of Russia, still he had no disposition personally to embark in the advocacy of his rights, but that if any of his nobles felt disposed to espouse his claims with arms or money, he certainly should do nothing to thwart them. The Polish nobles, thus encouraged, raised an army of forty thousand men, which they surrendered to Griska. He, assuming the name of Dmitri, placed himself at their head, and boldly commenced a march upon Moscow. As soon as he entered the Russian territories, many nobles hastened to his banners, and several important cities declared for him. Boris was excessively alarmed. With characteristic energy, he speedily raised an army of two hundred thousand men, and then was in the utmost terror lest this very army should pass over to the ranks of his foes. He applied to Sweden and to Denmark to help him, but both kingdoms refused. Dmitri advanced triumphantly, and laid siege to Novgorod on the 21st of December, 1605. For five months the war continued with varying success. Boris made every attempt to secure the assassination of Griska, but the wary chieftain was on his guard, and all such endeavors were frustrated. Griska at length decided to resort to the same weapons. An officer was sent to the Kremlin with a feigned account of a victory obtained over the troops of Dmitri. This officer succeeded in mingling poison with the food of Boris. The drug was so deadly that the usurper dropped and expired almost without a struggle and without a groan. As soon as Boris was dead, his widow, a woman of great ambition and energy, lost not an hour in proclaiming the succession of her son, Fyodor. The officers of the army were promptly summoned to take the oath of allegiance to the new sovereign. Fyodor was but fifteen years of age, a thoroughly spoilt boy, proud, domineering, selfish and cruel. There was now a revolt in the army of the late Tsar. Several of the officers embraced the cause of Griska, declaring their full conviction that he was the Prince Dmitri, and they carried over to his ranks a large body of the soldiers. The defection of the army caused great consternation at court. The courtiers, eager to secure the favor of the prince whose star was so evidently in the ascendant, at once abandoned the hapless Fyodor and his enraged mother, and the halls of the Kremlin and the streets of Moscow were soon resounding with the name of Dmitri. A proclamation was published declaring general amnesty, and rich rewards to all who should recognize and support the rights of their legitimate prince, but that his opponents must expect no mercy. The populace immediately rose in revolt against Fyodor. They assailed the Kremlin. In a resistless inundation they forced its gates, seized the young Tsar, with his mother, sister, and other relatives, and hurried them all to prison. Dmitri was at Thula when he received intelligence of this revolution. He immediately sent an officer, Basilius Galitzan, to Moscow to receive the oath of fidelity of the city, and, at the same time, he diabolically sent an assassin, one Ivan Bogdanov, with orders to strangle Fyodor and his mother in the prison, but with directions not to hurt his sister. Bogdanov reluctantly executed his mission. On the 15th of July, 1605, Dmitri made his triumphal entry into Moscow. He was received with all the noisy demonstrations of public rejoicing, and, on the 29th of July, was crowned, with extraordinary grandeur, Emperor of all the Russias. The ceremonies of the triumphal entrance are perhaps worthy of record. A detachment of Polish horse in brilliant uniform led the procession, headed by a numerous band of trumpeters, then came the gorgeous coach of Dmitri, empty, 
drawn by six horses, richly caparisoned, and preceded, followed, and flanked by dense columns of musketeers. Next came a procession of the clergy in their ecclesiastical robes, and with the banners of the church. This procession was led by the bishops, who bore effigies of the Virgin Mary, and of St. Nicholas, the patron saint of Russia. Following the clergy appeared Dmitri, mounted on a white charger, and surrounded by a splendid retinue. He proceeded first to the church of Notre Dame, where a Te Deum was chanted, and where the new monarch received the sacrament. He then visited the tomb of Ivan the Fourth, and, kneeling upon it, as the tomb of his father, implored God's blessing. Perceiving that the body of Boris Gudnow had received internment in the royal cemetery, he ordered his remains, with those of his wife and son, all three of whom Dmitri had caused to be assassinated, to be removed to a common churchyard without the city. Either to silence those who might doubt his legitimacy, or being truly the son of Ivan the Fourth, he sent two of the nobles, with a brilliant retinue, to the convent, more than six hundred miles from Moscow, to which Boris had banished the widow of Ivan. They were to conduct the Queen Dowager to the capital. As she approached the city, Dmitri went out to receive her, accompanied by a great number of his nobles. As soon as he perceived her coach, he alighted, went on foot to meet his alleged mother, and threw himself into her arms with every demonstration of joy and affection, which embraces she returned with equal tenderness. Then, with his head uncovered, and walking by the side of her carriage, he conducted her to the city and to the Kremlin. He ever after treated her with a deference due to a mother, and received from her corresponding proofs of confidence and affection. But Dmitri was thoroughly a bad man, and every day became more unpopular. He debauched the young sister of Fyodor, and then shut her up in the convent. He banished seventy noble families who were accused of being the friends of Boris, and gave their estates and dignities to his Polish partisans. A party was soon organized against him, who busily circulated reports that he was an impostor, and a conspiracy was formed to take his life. Perplexities and perils now gathered rapidly around his throne. He surrounded himself with Polish guards, and thus increased the exasperation of his subjects. To add to his perplexities, another claimant of the crown appeared, who declared himself to be the son of the late Tsar Fyodor, son of Ivan the Fourth. This young man, named Peter, was seventeen years of age. He had raised his standard on the other side of the Volga, and had rallied four thousand partisans around him. In the meantime, Dmitri had made arrangements for his marriage with Mariana Meniski, a Polish princess of the Roman Church. This princess was married to the Tsar by proxy, in Krakow, and in January 1606, with a numerous retinue, set out on her journey to Moscow. She did not reach the capital of Moscow until the 1st of May. Her father's whole family, and several thousand armed Polanders, by way of guard, accompanied her. Many of the Polish nobles also took this opportunity of visiting Russia, and a multitude of merchants put themselves in her train for purposes of traffic. The Tsarina was met, at some distance from Moscow, by the royal guard, and escorted to the city, where she was received with ringing of bells, shoutings, discharge of cannons, and all the ordinary and extraordinary demonstrations of popular joy. On the 8th of May, the ceremony of blessing the marriage was performed by the patriarch, and immediately after she was crowned Tsarina with greater pomp than Russia had ever witnessed before. But the appearance of this immense train of armed Poles incensed the Russians, and the clergy, who were jealous of the encroachments of the Church of Rome, were alarmed in behalf of their religion. An intrepid noble, Zuski, now resolved, by the energies of a popular insurrection, to rid the throne of Dmitri. With great sagacity and energy the conspiracy was formed. 
the tsarina was to give a grand entertainment on the evening of the seventeenth of may and the conspirators fixed upon that occasion for the consummation of their plan twenty thousand troops were under the orders of zuski and he had led them all into the city under the pretense of having them assist in the festival at six o'clock in the morning of the appointed day these troops accompanied by some thousands of the populace surrounded the palace and seized its gates a division was then sent in who commenced the indiscriminate massacre of all who were or who looked like polanders it was taken for granted that all in the palace were either poles or their partisans the alarm bells were now rung and zuski traversed the streets with a drawn sabre in one hand and a cross in the other rousing the ignorant populace by the cry that the poles had taken up arms to murder the russians dmitri in his chamber hearing the cries of the dying and the shrieks of those who fled before the assassins leaped from his window into the courtyard and by his fall dislocated his thigh he was immediately seized conveyed into the grand hall of audience and the strong guard was set over him the murderers ransacked the palace penetrating every room killing every polish man and treating the polish ladies with the utmost brutality they inquired eagerly for the tsarina but she was nowhere to be found she had concealed herself beneath the hoop of an elderly lady whose gray hairs and withered cheek had preserved her from violence zuski now went to the dowager tsarina the widow of ivan the fourth and demanded that she should take her oath upon the gospels whether dmitri were her son he reported that thus pressed she confessed that he was an impostor and that her true son had perished many years before the conspirators now fell upon dmitri and his body was pierced with a thousand dagger thrusts his mangled remains were then dragged through the streets and burned mariana was soon after arrested and sent to prison it is said that nearly two thousand poles perished in this massacre even to the present day opinion is divided in russia in regard to dmitri whether he was an impostor or the son of ivan the fourth respecting his character there is no dispute all that can be said in his favor is that he would not commit an atrocious crime unless impelled to do it by very strong temptation there was now no one who seemed to have any legitimate title to the throne of russia the nobles and the senators who were at moscow then met to proceed to the election of a new sovereign it was an event almost without a parallel in russian history the lords though very friendly in their deliberations found it difficult to decide into whose hands to entrust the sceptre it was at last unanimously concluded to make an appeal to the people their voice was for zuski he was accordingly declared czar and was soon after crowned with a degree of unanimity which though well authenticated seems inexplicable the poles were exasperated beyond measure at the massacre of so many of their nobles and at the insult offered to mariana the tsarina but poland was at that time distracted by civil strife and the king found it expedient to postpone the hour of vengeance zuski commenced his reign by adopting measures which gave him great popularity with the adjoining kingdoms while they did not diminish the favorable regards of the people but suddenly affairs assumed a new aspect so strange that a writer of fiction would hardly have ventured to imagine it an artful man a schoolmaster in poland who could speak the russian language declared that he was dmitri that he had escaped from the massacre in his palace and that it was another man mistaken for him whom the assassins had killed poland inspired by revenge eagerly embraced this man's cause mariana who had been liberated from prison was let into the secret and willing to ascend again to the grandeur from which she had fallen entered with cordial cooperation into this new intrigue the widowed tsarina and the polish adventurer contrived their first meeting in the presence of a large concourse of nobles and citizens they rushed together in a warm embrace 
while tears of affected transport bedewed their cheeks. Their farce was so admirably performed that many were deceived, and this new Dmitri and the Tsarina occupied for several days the same tent in the Polish encampment, apparently as husband and wife. End of chapter 16 Recording by Jeff Kluckner, Plymouth, UK